Hi, I'm Lisa Brenner, letting you know that my new film, Say My Name, will be available in selected theaters and on demand starting June 14th. It's a madcap British comedy about love, one night stands, and criminals who shoot themselves in the leg. To find out more, go to the Say My Name Movie Facebook page or simply search the hashtag Say My Name Movie on whatever social media you use, and you might just see me in a sex scene. That's all I'm saying. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by Jodorowsky's Dune producer Steve Scarlatta and Josh Miller, where they explore some of the greatest movies that were never made, from E.T. 2 to Tim Burton's Superman, Night Skies to Star Trek The Academy Years. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of Star Trek, check out my new sci-fi TV series, Pandora, debuting on The CW and around the world on July 9th, starring Priscilla Quintana and Oliver Dench, and you can find out more by downloading the Unboxing Pandora podcast, available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. Get ready to join the Inglorious Trexperts live at San Diego Comic-Con as they boldly go to the greatest Comic-Con on Earth. We'll be there, will you? Meet all your favorite and least favorite Inglorious Trexperts hosts as they talk Trek live and in person, only at San Diego Comic-Con. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. Welcome to the Wrath of Gene. The Wrath of Gene. What a fascinating thing this is going to be. You know, it's fine. I'm going to tell you a story about Gene, but before I do that, I want to introduce our special guest. Robert Meyer Burnett is back. It's great to be here. This is actually a fascinating uh, episode of Star Trek history that I was unaware of. Yeah, and I'll tell you something about uh, <laughs> the first time I was ever on the Paramount lot. I went to, uh, it was my first time in LA. I went to go visit um, Robert Lewin. To, 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 I just interviewed him. Uh, he was a, a producer on the first season of Star mm-hmm. Trek The Next Ray. They hadn't even started filming yet. Right. And uh, he said, oh, if you're ever in LA, uh, you know, come say hello, which was really nice. This is the way peop- the gentleman writers of the day right. were, were. He said, oh, if you ever, in-? so I was, and I called him. He said, oh, please come by and say hello. And he'd worked on The Paper Chase, which is a show sure. I loved. And so uh, I was sitting in 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 uh, the lobby of the Hart Building, first time I was ever on the Paramount lot, and uh, Susan Sackett was there, and Robert Lewin's office was on the left, and Gene was on the right, and uh, I'm just, I'm just sitting waiting for Bob Lewin to show up, and making small talk with Susan, who of course I knew from books like Letters to Star Trek sure, and, and all that. It was like, oh my God, it's Susan Sackett. This is making pretty, of Star Trek, making the Star picture. Trek. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and all of a sudden the door swings open. Motherfucker, red Fuck you! It was Gene Roddenberry. God, was he fucking pissed. I don't know what he was angry about, but he was screaming and yelling, went into his office, slammed the door. So that was the first I saw of angry wow. Gene. Um, you know, and I, I met him a number of times after that, and of course we all became good friends with Rod Roddenberry and sure. stuff, but, um, uh, you know, the thing about, you know, Gene is he was a gentle giant. He was a big guy. He, um, you know, his voice, as we know, uh, was very soothing and quiet, <laughs> but yet he had a very explosive could have a very explosive temper. He was a man of passions. He was a man of passions, all kinds of passions. And, um, you know, when uh, Gene 
uh, Gene, Star Trek was Gene's baby, and he worked on shows like The Lieutenant, which got canceled, and mm-hmm. uh, been a writer on many shows. But Star Trek meant something to him, and uh, it was pretty remarkable. And as we all know, after uh, you know, he hired John D.F. Black and, and, and got very burnt out on Star Trek very quickly because the startup was brutal and, and he left. Um, uh, and Gene Kuhn sort of was running the show. And then, uh, but he was never completely gone. And the first season was tough. first season was tough sure. because, you know, you had these two stars who uh, didn't get along, you know, uh, Bill Shatner and uh, Leonard Nimoy. Uh, because, of course, Bill had been hired off uh, a failed TV show for the people um, but he was the matinee idol who who had, everyone was pegging to have a huge career. Right. Um, um, he had been in a bunch of movies. He'd been on Broadway. He was the leading man. Mm-hmm. And then there was this guy from Boston, you know, who had bit parts and things like Zombies of the Stratosphere, right. Leonard Nimoy, who they hired, who was going to be the second banana. Right. But that's not the way it turned out, was it? Because he started getting more fan mail. He, he started getting more fan mail. Everybody loves Spock. Yeah. Girls love Spock. <laughs> and the um, network wanted to get rid of him. Already, right. Leonard Nimoy was going to not be. He was From in the, the pilot, first yeah. failed pilot, and uh, they wanted to kick him to the curb. And so, you know, for 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 Bill, for Shatner at the time, you know, who's like top lining the series and expected to be the stars and all be a bucker, you know, who's the guy with the ears getting more fan mail than me, right. getting more love than me, and you know, for Leonard, you know, it kind of went to his head. It was right. like for the first time, he was a star. And yeah. as they described it, they had a. Uh, a fraternal, uh, brotherly uh, relationship. Yes, and that they they were both children of the same parents. Yeah, yeah. and they were vying for attention. Well, and it's interesting because um, there's something you learn as a showrunner very early on in television. There's an old axiom: the first year of a show, it's your show. The second year of a show, it's yours and the cast. Mm-hmm. And the third year belongs to the cast. Right. They get more and more power as it goes on. And uh, this is kind of what was kind of starting to happen on Star Trek. You know, uh, Bill was asserting his uh, 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 alpha male dominance by yeah. setting up a rehearsal table on set mm-hmm. where the directors were being undermined by, you know, Bill wanting to rehearse scenes beforehand with the cast. You know, meanwhile, Leonard, you know, saying, well, Spock wouldn't do that, right. you know. Um, and it, the, the cast was really asserting themselves. Sure. And, uh also wanting to change lines right. and, and becoming very difficult. And, and and not necessarily negative things, I mean, in the grand scheme of the show. I mean, after all, um, Nimoy came up with the Vulcan neck pinch to avoid a, a big slug scene. Yeah, yeah. But it enhanced the Spock character and it, as a result, the Star Trek show. Sure. And the enemy within. Yes. Yeah. So... Um, uh, you know, this is sort of the end of the first season going into the second season where the show lived. And, you know, uh, it, it, it was not a, a happy, necessarily a happy place. Right. Um, it was uh, it was it was a challenge. And, you know, I'll tell you, I mean, firsthand, uh, you know, I saw a lot of that in the memos when I was researching 50 year mission where you see letters um, from the agents uh, to Gene and, you know, saying why. um you know, did, did, there was this article in the Times where Le- Leonard says he gets more autographs than anybody on the show. Right. And Gene says, well, we never told them that. I'm sorry. And, you know, and then Bill would complain about things. He said, look, this is Leonard's publicist and mm-hmm. had nothing to do with us. We think you're the star of the show. So there was a lot of trying to soothe fragile egos. But it was an explosive situation. 
And, uh, you know, by mid-second season, it had really come to a head. And Gene was trying to, uh, you know... To, deal to, with the situation. To deal with the situation. So he wrote what was called, you know, w- which was The Memo. Right. And the first I ever heard of The Memo, and I don't know how familiar... Rob, you mentioned you weren't familiar with no. it. Um, was it David Gerald's The World of Star Trek. Right. He talks about... This infamous memo that has been lost to the sands of time. That I remember. Yeah. And I always wanted to read that memo. Yeah. Well, stay tuned. <laughs> and um, and uh, this was lost to the sands of time in which he sort of escoriates um, both uh, Leonard and Bill for their behavior. And a little bit. Well, that's the surprise. Yeah. A little bit D. Kelly, too, as we'll, we'll learn. Um, and, you know, basically he called them my child star club. And... Um, and uh, basically, you know, warning them that if they don't straighten up and fly right, the show is going to go on the dumpster. Um, that it's going to be, you know, no one will end up with a happy ending. Um, and that uh, he's certainly considering walking away and talks about alluding to the fact that Gene Kuhn leaving the show is attributable to their mm-hmm. antics. Right. Um, Whether or not that was the case. Yeah, because of course one of the things that set set set, set a lot of this in motion was when they, uh, Shatner and Nimoy were in the makeup trailer, and uh, a newspaper journalist shows up to interview Leonard and do all mm-hmm. this stuff. And Shatner's sitting there having to watch him interview Leonard. Right. Um, so it was a very explosive, explosive situation. And I have to say, I don't think this letter did a very good job of <laughs> calming tensions. It's yeah, it. And I, I don't think it was intended to. Mm. I think it was intended to uh, give some fear into the equation. Well, I think that until this point, he, Gene had been trying to kill with kindness. Right. Had, and that wasn't working. And so I think he needed to use the stick now. Right. And um, so anyway, I had read about this famous uh, legendary letter, which... You know, ever since, you know, David Gerald's never read in its entirety. I only heard about it secondhand, probably from uh, uh, Gene Kuhn. Uh, no one had ever seen it. Right. In the course of researching the 50-year mission, Ed Gross and I, we found it. Because I, I, there are only three copies of the letter. And um, one, I think, the one that was sent to Shatner, I'm sure, was destroyed. Mm-hmm. The one that was sent to Leonard, you know, it was probably destroyed. I, 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 you know, Gene said it's not going in the files mm-hmm. because he didn't want this to be public. It was right. only for their, you know, for, for, for Bill and, and Leonard and, and D. And uh, so it's not something that was widely disseminated. So we got it, which was, uh, I remember when I first came across it, my eyes went wide. I'm like, this can't be what I think right. it is. And it was like, <laughs> oh my God. Not only was it what I thought it was, but it exceeded all my wildest expectations. Wow! Uh, in terms of, I mean, anybody who doubts Gene's ability as a writer uh, <laughs> should have their head examined. I mean, I, there because there's some brilliant, as we will find out, passages. I mean, there's one point where Gene talks about, um, uh, you know, he said, uh, uh, you know, it would take a, a, a Solomon to resolve uh, the problems amongst all of you. Right. And Star Trek was not gifted with the Solomon. Right. And he <laughs> said, you argue like fishmongers arguing over the catch of the day yeah. and um, you know, our child star club. And he said, even you, D, who fashions himself as easy to get along with and the sweetheart, I see, I see uh, 
uh, the beginnings right. of uh, uh, you know uh, a membership to the Child Star Club. Of, you know, it's just um, it, there's there there's so many great quotes. So what we decided to do, what we decided to do for this episode, this very special episode, <laughs> is conjure up Gene Roddenberry to read the memo. Because even in my book, it's just excerpted. In 50-Year Mission, we've excerpted it. We could, we didn't use the whole memo. Um, we literally uh, have brought Gene back to uh, <laughs> read the entire memo. Now, some of you may be tuning out and saying, look, I don't like seeing the dark side of Star Trek, the dark side of genius. Uh, and that's fine. We get it. You know, we get it. You may not be, you may not be interested. You want to believe everything was, you know, hunky-dory. Look, uh, but the, the fact is, it's a fascinating insight into the making of a television series and how the sausage is made. I mean, I'm a fan of truth, and this is dripping in truth. It is dripping in truth. It's very insightful. Uh, you know, if you've read any of Shatner's books, you know, he downplays the feud. This is conclusive, irrefutable proof that there was, you know, a very dramatic family feud between um, the lead actors. And again, I think that what's so eye-opening is that D. Kelly... Uh, was not immune from the right. slings and is arrows. Is this going to make me cry? Like, am I going to walk away from this and really, really, like, re-examine my life? No, because there's nothing you don't know already. Right. I mean, we all we all know that they didn't always get along, that the original cast, there was a lot of turmoil. They were family on screen. Right. They were never family off screen. And that's fine. It only, you know, we all know sure. you can watch and enjoy Castle mm -hmm. without, no, you know, and, and love those characters without... Uh, being aware of the fact that you know Nathan and Stana hated each other and would talk to each other, right. um, you know it, it just that's reality television. How many shows are there where the lead actors can't stand each other? And that certainly was not the case with Star Trek. Shatner right. and Nimoy couldn't. They per personally were very friendly to each other. They liked each other. It was a totally a business thing. And eventually, you know, they would become a united front when they negotiated right. for favored nations. By the time the movies come along, they were very much you know, in sync with each other. Right. So sure. it has a happy ending. In fact, it's very possible that Gene's letter had the intended effect right. to diffuse tensions because D never became, you know, a real issue. Right. And 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 by all accounts, by the end of the second season, uh, with John Meredith Lucas, they were a much better behavior than they were with Gene Kuhn. Right. But also Gene Kuhn, as brilliant as he was as a writer, was not as he, he diplomatic. Wasn't, he, yeah, he wasn't a a, a people person. No. And he, very much internalized. Yeah. And, and you know, also he was not sleeping because right. he was writing all the time and on methamphetamines. So it was like, you know, he, he wasn't the guy who would have the patience to sit down and say, hey, guys, you know, what, what's going on? You know, Kuhn was not that way. Where John right. Meredith Lucas was also a producer and a director and a writer. Right. He was much more tolerant and willing to put the time in to soothe fragile egos. Then you get the third season. And I think part of it, was Fred Freiberger was clearly on Shatner's side. Right. You know, which is why one of the reasons, like, Shatner defends Freiberger and likes the third season. Right. You know, whereas Nimoy hates the third season. Right. Because Spock was really sidelined uh, and is out of character a lot. Um, and uh, I think at that point he knew this, the writing was on the wall and he was ready to jump ship and mm -hmm. do other things anyway, so he didn't care. Well, as you can, as you'll hear in the memo... He was like that before, too. <laughs> right. And you can hear a lot of the sort of behind-the-scenes machinations, and uh, Roddenberry calls him calls Nimoy out on it. So mm -hmm. there are a lot of bitter dregs, would you say? 
bitter dregs. <laughs> Take care, young ladies, and value your wine. <laughs> Maiden wine. We'll have to play that in the episode. Um, but anyway, I think this is a really great um, trip down memory lane. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a great look back at a really important part of Star Trek it's history. It's an really unfiltered crucial. look. Yeah. At how it was. And it, it, like I said, it, it's something that um, really, ha- it, it, this was like um, filmic archaeology. Mm-hmm. It was Indiana Jones of film and TV scholarship. I mean, that's why I felt like we were finding the Lost Ark when we uncovered this. Uh, it was just, it was so exciting for so me. So this is living up to the name Inglorious. It in is Inglorious. I mean, let me tell you, this is not something I think that, you know, uh, you'd find on, on many, because it's it's not flattering for anyone. No. But it, it's more common than you would think. This is why I don't I don't feel this is unique to Star Trek. Uh, you know, a lot of the behavior of the actors on other shows in the '60s were were far worse, and and certainly and today, um, I mean, you know, just ask anybody who worked on the blacklist. You know, it's 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 uh, so I don't I don't think that um, you know it's just it's because of Star Trek and it's it, people we love. Um, it's 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 very interesting, and I I really do think it reflects well on Gene because it's it's just a very poetic uh, absolutely uh, letter. So, um, anything you want to add, Darren? It, uh, maybe may, maybe afterwards there's more to tell. But um. <laughs> well, then without any further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Gene Ronberry and the uh, the 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 the, quote memo. Unquote, the letter, the memo, the memo that launched a thousand starships. August 17th, 1967. Mrs. William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly. William Leonard DeForest. This is personal and confidential. No copies in the file or to other than you three. This includes personal comments on your fellow actors, so I ask you the courtesy of not showing these pages to wives, agents, or other persons. I'm sure you know by now I have not hesitated about saying anything eye to eye, but I'm putting this in writing to be certain I've covered every point. Also, I don't want a discussion. I've had it with discussions. For well over a year now, every meeting you've requested with me, and I can undoubtedly include Jean Kuhn, every discussion you've initiated, almost every word on stage or street, has almost totally and unilaterally concerned you, your feelings, your problems, your hopes and ambitions, what you won't do, what you want changed, your image, your publicity, this to a point where ad nauseum is the only possible summation. During that time I have carefully submerged my own personal feelings and problems, believing it was best for the show to give my full attention to your needs. Even when your attitudes shocked me as impossibly egocentric, selfish, and immature, I've tried to play the understanding counselor and referee. Well, gentlemen, I've had it. Toss these pages in the air if you like, stomp off and be angry. It doesn't mean that much since you've driven me to the edge of not giving a damn. Jean Kuhn is ill and leaving due to emotional fatigue for which you bear some share of the blame. Robert Jessman came by last night asking to get out. 
I'm discussing with my agent now the pros and cons of turning the series over to the tender mercies of Paramount and their Gulf Western accountants. No, William, I'm not really writing this to Leonard and just including you as a matter of psychology. I'm talking to you directly and with an angry honesty you haven't heard before. And, Leonard, you'd be very wrong if you think I'm really teeing off at Shatner and only pretending to include you. The same letter to both. You've pretty well divided up the market on selfishness and egocentricity. Of the three, it goes to DeForest to a lesser extent, but even you have shown signs lately of wanting to join our child star club. I want you to know exactly where you're all taking yourselves, your professional reputation, the show, and the investment you've all made in it. You may find either interest or profit in the fact that when I told Gene Kuhn and Robert Justman I was going to write you, their bitter comment was that they doubted you are any longer capable of accepting an assessment of yourselves. From what I've seen lately, I tend to agree. Despite that, I did decide to get this to you on the weekend, giving you a couple of days for anger, tantrums, rationalizations, calls to agents, or even some analysis of its contents should there be a mature capacity for self-examination lurking unexpected there somewhere. Star Trek began as one of the TV productions in town where actors, as fellow professionals, were not only listened to but actually invited to bring their script and series comments to the production office. Your ideas were actively solicited. Your ideas, we told our directors, were important to us. When small problems and pettiness begins to happen, as it happens on all shows, I instructed our people that it should be overlooked where possible, because we should all understand the enormous physical and emotional task of your job. Think back, gentlemen, on the staggering list of efforts made to understand, to fix, to set right. You and I agreed that a company of mature professionals should be treated as mature professionals. Thus, we have no insoluble problems. Well, it hasn't worked. I was warned by fellow producers it wouldn't. I preferred to ignore them, believing we had a unique group. Meanwhile, these other producers have gone at it their way, keeping their actors at arm's length, treating them as hired bodies with gift of mimicry, to be constantly maneuvered, threatened, and disciplined if necessary, so that they'll stand in front of the camera on cue and say lines given to them to say. Sure, they've had problems, but they expected it and kept it in check. Their shows, whatever the quality may be, are coming in faster each month. The audience watches them, and their networks are happy. And the hundreds of hours these producers don't spend listening to their actors are free for further improvement of the show golf, and family. Meanwhile, Gene Roddenberry has gone in his way and is now losing valuable associates, spending on actor problems, energy, and hours that could be keep Paramount off Star Trek's back or invested to make the show better. The result of Gene Roddenberry's policy of happy partnership? Star Trek is going down the drain, there's a paradox in all of this. At the moment, our show has rocketed up to number nine position in the Nielsen on rerun shows. 
Our growth curve during the summer has been extraordinary. The network is enthusiastic over a long-term potential they're finally beginning to see. And with this, our show is falling apart, racked by a degree of pettiness and bickering by and between you fellow professionals that is hard to describe except as some ego-driven instinct for personal and professional self-destruction. You, all three of you, seem to have some strange sophomoric belief, completely ignoring the realities of the medium you pretend to know, that complete equity is not only possible, but absolutely necessary at every moment and on every subject affecting you. Without intending a slur on your masculinity, you've become the picture of three fishwives trying to divide the day's catch, weighing, counting, craftily trying to con others and each other with smiles or tantrums, depending on which seems to work best at the moment. Then departing bitter that God in his wisdom did not provide the Solomon who would have understood that your true worth deserved more. Well, God didn't have a Solomon to spare for Star Trek. If the show should go on under whatever leadership, or if you manage to kill the show and go on to some other, you're still going to get shit on now and then. And I doubt that your continued cries of surprised indignation are going to change the hard realities of life and the television business. No, Virginia, there is no Santa Claus. Nor for you, William and Leonard, no Solomon who can guarantee that you aren't going to continue getting scripts which might have caught your characterization a little better, or which give a line to another you think properly yours, or directors who end a scene with the camera on what you believe is the wrong actor, or that bickering about those changes on stage won't every time destroy far more than you could ever hope to gain. Now to specifics. William, yes, when discussing the Spock character, you say all the right things. Wonderful character for the show, highly valuable, a large factor in our success, Nimoy handles it with skill. Nice sentiments, very pro. Except that your actions make it painfully obvious to everyone that you don't believe it for a minute. Your constant frantic concern not only over Spock's lines, but lately McCoy's, Scott's, and most recently even Chekhov's small part is almost embarrassingly apparent and is a key factor in the sabotage and breakdown of whatever stage morale is left. You said to me the other day, and more lately to others, that you're going to show us what a star is really like. If that is meant as a threat, I'll be forced into the only possible answer. I'll show you what a producer is really like. Let each of you be aware that as long as I'm on this show, I'll run it, and I'll damn well keep running it until the day I leave. You've been saying lately that you were told you'd be completely dominant as the star of the show, that you've been misled, and the stories had better start being exclusively about you or else. Bullshit. You saw the first pilot. You read the format. You played some twenty or more episodes without any such comment or complaint. You know when these new thoughts were born, just as I know when and how it happened. The name of this show is Star Trek. It's not about to be changed to The Adventures of Captain Kirk. 
the concept stays as we've played it for a year and a half, and that concept will not be changed. Any of you have two choices. First, there are always ways to get off a show. Anyone on Star Trek, and I include myself, is replaceable. The star of our sister show, Mission Impossible, was replaced last year, and I see no signs the series was injured. Co-stars are replaced every season, and surprisingly, few shows change in the slightest. Or a second choice, you can stop rationalizing and start realizing that you are most fortunate performers on what still could be not only a hit show, but a distinguished one, brought to that potential not solely by your talent, but also by a company of highly talented associates. Back to you for a moment, William. I want you to realize fully where your fight for absolute screen dominance is taking you. It's already affecting the image of Captain Kirk on the screen. We're heading for an arrogant, loud, half-assed Queeg character who is so blatantly insecure upon that screen that he can't afford to let anyone else have an idea, give an order, or solve a problem. You can't hide things like that from an audience. The camera is there day after day, and like it or not, it'll show through. And now, Leonard. I must say that if I were Shatner, I'd be nervous and edgy about you by now, too. For a man who makes no secret of his own sensitivity, you show a strange lack of understanding of it in your fellow actors, and an appalling lack of gratitude for the good fortune which has swept you almost overnight into national prominence. No, damn it, I don't expect you to stand at my door with roses and moist eyes. Hell, I'll give up even the pleasure of a single verbal thank you. What I needed most of all, and had every right to expect, if you had any perception and experience in this business, was that you would have put yourself in the other man's place for a moment, and then proceeded with intelligent tact, diplomacy, and even patience. My God, man, this isn't the first time in this industry that a second banana, or, dating from the first pilot, a third lead, has suddenly caught the public fancy, and any actor who can at all call himself experienced knows the quite legitimate surprise and torment it can cause the lead actor. It has never happened otherwise. Did you weigh this carefully, the meaning and dangers of this to the entire enterprise, the honorable obligations to contract and to me? Or did you grab all the goodies with all the tact, grace, and patience of a two-year-old toppling a jar of chocolates from the shelf? Let me tell you what people you respect are saying, what it looks like to them, true or not. Certainly you've lived long enough to know that people are affected not by what appears to be true. A growing opinion is that Leonard feels that he has now broken the anonymity barrier via the Spock character, and thus, with the world waiting certain there can be cruel disappointments such as has happened to a long list of others who charged on at the first blush of popularity, he has no real need now to inconvenience himself in order to protect our joint enterprise or fulfill express or implied or even moral obligations. Star Trek has done the job he wanted done, and he can now move on at any time and profit personally and richly in new roles and enterprises. 
Thus, there is no reason to not apply pressure in any way that makes the Spock role stronger or more pleasant for him to play, and nothing lost if this rocks the boat to the point where it sinks. True? Any portion true? We know this, whereas Shatner, for all his incredible mistakes, will sometimes blow and get it out of his system, sometimes even apologize and try to make up to people any wrongs or iniquities to Leonard Nimoy, real or fancied, seem to result in an image of unshakable, surly, and eternal unforgiveness. Not true again? Let's repeat what you've said at one time or another. Quote, I've got so much personal integrity I'll leave if the role isn't what I think it should be, if it fouls up the futures of my fellows who invested in this, or if they starve too, that's tough. Unquote. According to my dictionary, Leonard, that describes selfishness. Integrity means something quite different to most men, and again, a paraphrase of something you said, but the gist of it. I've worried about other people all my life, but now here, starting with Star Trek, I'm reversing all this, and I'll get mine, and the other guy worry about his. Although I've blasted Shatner on his foolish and self-destructive insecurities, let's take a look at what he faces in you. This is not Shatner's description, but one by a former studio fan of yours. Quote, I see a growing image of a shrewd, ambition-dominated man, probing, waiting with emotions and feelings masked, ready to leap at the right moment and send others broken and reeling when Nimoy thinks he can finally take what he's been waiting to take. Unquote. Wrong? Unfair? That's how it looks to some. A paradox in this. The above seems to be your very image of Shatner. And others wonder, too, whether under his more jovial exterior the same beast doesn't lurk. Funny if it turned out you're both right. Now, I've told Shatner that Spock won't be come Star Trek's lead. I've also made approximately a half day of production a show. The director will permit it only when there is valid dramatic story or interpretation point at stake with which he believes will make it necessary. The director will be told he is also replaceable, and failure to stay on top and in charge of the set will be grounds for his dismissal. All right, my three former friends and unique professionals, that's it. In straight talk, not just my opinions, but a summation of feelings held by almost all your fellows. Maybe everybody's wrong, and you three are right. Nothing I've seen yet leads me to believe that won't be your opinion. Again, I don't want to talk about it. If I'm wrong, show me. Gene Roddenberry. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I don't know what to say, guys. <laughs> uh, I mean, you. I, I feel bad that you brought Gene back from the afterlife to read that. I, I feel like I should take a shower. Well, you know, he, he... Truth hurts. It... It makes me feel all the more impressed at what they did. That's on, true. On screen. Because, on screen. Mm-hmm. Because these these were amazing actors. Because with all this other stuff going on behind the scenes, 
for them to be able to convey such camaraderie and such love um, on screen is phenomenal. Yes. So would you say then it's an uplifting message that we've all learned today? <laughs> you know what? I think the revelation of truth is always uplifting hmm. and it informs us and it it teaches us how life really is. And I think that is good in any universe. Well, we're definitely not Liberty Valance. We don't believe on printing the legend on the show. We like no, to get to the truth of all things. And I think you know, we're, be- we're all the better for it. And as Trexperts, we need to know all of it. Yeah, Mark, you've been a, a, a showrunner in television. Could you ever see yourself writing a memo like that? Yes. <laughs> Maybe even a, the exact same memo with the names crossed out. <laughs> yeah, it's a good template. Yeah, yeah. just cross out Bill exactly. and Leonard and replace it. You're like Phil fishmongers <laughs> arguing over the catch of the day. What? What's a fishmonger? <laughs> Baby fish mouth. Baby fish sweeping mouth. the nation. <laughs> Although, as you'll notice, it didn't say fishmongers, it said fish mothers. Oh, did it? It did. So, I don't know what that means. Maybe, (laughs) maybe Gene was just so flustered when he was typing it. Yeah, that's what came out. Yeah, I mean, and I wonder because he famously used like a dictograph machine that uh, Susan Sackett would train. Not Susan Sackett at the time. It was um, Penny Juday or no, 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 no. no. Who was it back then? It was God. Anyway, he had a secretary back then who would then take it and 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 transcribe. Yeah. Um, But I, you know, I don't know if he typed it himself. The one after Dorothy Fontana. Yeah, the one after Dorothy Fontana. I know because I tried to find her for the book, mm. but I think she'd passed away mm. because we weren't able to find her. You know, we found Gene Kuhn's secretary, uh, the you know, and Andre Robinson, which is a whole Robertson, which is a whole nother. Amazing. Show. Yeah, I my favorite part of of this, I'm among many, but uh, the time that he says, "Well, as you know, our sister show, Mission Impossible, got rid of their lead last season with." No apparent reaction from <laughs> yeah, the audience. Exactly. You know, he and I love. He, he talks about Shatner is in danger of becoming a Captain Queeg character. Yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> just. I mean, uh, wow. It, it's wow. just it, what an interesting look into the reality that uh, went into making this show. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's. Uh, it, it, you know, it, it's amazing what they. Uh, we're able to accomplish and you know look uh, uh, you know Star Trek is not immune from these uh, situations I mean you look at all the shows uh, they're legendary feuds and squabbles Um, uh, Next Generation had the happiest set Mm -hmm. uh, but you still had you know Gates sort of being sidelined and replaced by Diana Muldaur who they all hated right you know and she hated them (laughs) because she was getting paid more money right and uh, she was gone after a season you know, um, and and by all accounts, that was Maurice Hurley who, you know, sidelined Gates, and then it was Gene who wanted Diana Muldaur. Um, by the time you get to Deep Space Nine, there was a lot going on there. Mm-hmm. A lot of it, which we can't talk about. Right. Uh, it was mostly like uh, Laronde, you know, with a lot of uh, people were sleeping together, and then when they stopped, they were pissed at other people, and there was, you know, there were a lot. Like Deep Space Nine, if they ever tell the real story, even we could not quite tell the real story. There was, even some people wouldn't go on record about certain things mm-hmm. that we were privy to, and it, oh God, that's, the, the, the Deep Space Nine stories are, are well, that was a they're mess. Epic. That, yeah, they're epic. And then uh, Voyager, you know, we've talked about this in the past, you know, Kate Mulgrew, Jerry Ryan feud, mm-hmm. the reasons for that. Right. Um, 
you know, uh, and 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 also, uh, you know, uh, Kate Mulgrew's mea culpa, which we right. give her so much credit for, for acknowledging the fact that the bad blood was her right. from her side, and that in retrospect she feels terrible about the way she treated Jerry, um, and uh, you know, you you get you know, Enterprise by all accounts. Well, you know, Linda Park wasn't anybody's favorite, apparently, mm. and uh, and then uh, you know, Discovery, you know, Jason Isaacs was. Tough on his writers. So. Emprisato is my favorite, though. We, we know, Rob. You said that on many occasions. So, you know, Star Trek has a history of, you know, look, but the creative endeavor is cra- it's tough. Right. Yeah. People feel passionately. And, and, you know, they care. And they battle. And, uh, they you know, hopefully they want it for the right reasons. That's You know, and that's ultimately the message to take away from this. Shatner and Nimoy, for the most part, were fighting for what they believed was right. It was, right. yes, part of it was ego. A lot of it was because... They wanted to protect their characters. They believed in their characters. They wanted, you know, to be right by the character Kirk and the right character Spock, and do right by the show. They were trying to it was right by the show and not just themselves. And the show was always embattled. It was never like it was this number one show that was the network right. jewel. It was always it was always the the coming in second. It was always hanging on. Yeah, you know, and then and then after the second season, well, after the first season, it was a great. Right. And then after the second season, there was a letter writing campaign. And imagine the pressure on both men. Right. You know, I mean, Shatner had to had to shoulder the burden of being the lead in this show that was never the number one show. Right. Mm-hmm. What does that do to a man? Yeah, this was a man. This was a man. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's it's it's. Uh, you're absolutely right. And I mean, there was it was always on the bubble. Uh, it, it was always a show that you know the the ratings were not stellar. Uh, maybe not as bad as they they were portrayed. Mm-hmm. You know, Mark uh, Cushman did some good scholarship about that, but it was never a show that was considered a a success. Um, you know, or it was a hit show by any means. Um, it's uh, it's just it's all fascinating. It's fascinating that here we are, when fifty years later, and we're still finding out things we never knew about right. the show. It's fascinating. You it's know, fascinating. So. It certainly is. Um, but anyway, there you have it: <laughs> the wrath of Gene. Uh, and uh, I want to thank you guys for once again uh, being part of another, you know, Rob, it's great to have you here on Glorious Trexperts. Well, it was great to, you know, I never, I met Gene Roddenberry once at a Christmas party uh, in at Hancock his house? Park. Uh, no, it wasn't at his house. It was at a Christmas party in Hancock Park for Next Generation. And uh, just to meet him today, it was amazing to, <laughs> to see at that. the Christmas party, I suggest that it happened a different way. I love you guys. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I got to tell you, you know, it's funny because I remember when we interviewed his good friend Christopher Knopf uh, for the book, who who passed away this year, earlier this year. All he could talk about is like, what do you remember about Gene? Ed Gross interviewed him. He threw great parties. What else can you tell us about Gene? He was my best friend. He threw great parties. Invited me to a lot of parties. Those were great parties, and they were. I mean, we went to a lot of parties at Gene's house, and when you and you I know, never I, got to go. They were they, ironically. Th- you never went to, <laughs> to the house in Bel Air. I never got to. Oh man, Rod Rod uh, took up the mantle of, of he his did. father. He did. He knew he, how he to throw, throw great, great parties. parties too. Yeah, that was a huge house. Huge, man. And now it's gone because when Rod sold it, they tore it down. Really? Yeah, it's not there anymore. Wow. On Palagio Lane, if I remember. Yeah. So anyway, well, listen, guys, uh, this has been a real pleasure as always. Um, and I uh, thank you for joining us for Inglorious Trexperts to all our 
uh, people out there listening in cyberspace or whatever <laughs> we call it out there in your cars and on your iPhones. And... Is Rafe Needleman listening to us now? <laughs> and uh, I want to remind you, if you're a fan of this podcast, you may want to check out Electric Surge's other podcasts like the 430 Movie uh, every Friday, Disco Nights on Sundays, the Ultimate Star Trek Discovery Podcast with Chase Masterson, and um, as well as uh, Best Movies Never Made on Monday uh, Monday with um, Steve Scarlatta, uh, producer of Jodorowsky's Dune, and writer um, Josh Miller. So that's a great show. I'm really I'm enjoying that. In fact, uh, Rob and I um, are going to be on an uh, upcoming episode where we talk about uh, Free Enterprise, uh, The Wrath of Shatner, another great movie never made. Uh, so, it, oh God. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts, and you can follow us at Inglorious Trek on Twitter, Inglorious Trexperts on Instagram. And if you want some cool, cool Inglorious Trexperts swag, don't forget to check out IngloriousTrek.com or IngloriousTrexperts.com, where you can pick up a T-shirt or uh, logo wear, sweater, fleece, um, memos, uh, spiral <laughs> notebook, uh, um, uh, all kinds of cool stuff. But the memo will not be on there. The, 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 right. The memo is not for sale. <laughs> you can only get it here for the discounted price of no dollars. <laughs> also, a very special thanks to uh, Bill Ritter and everyone here at Electric Surge Network. Uh, thank you for everything you do for us every, every episode, every week. And uh, until next Saturday... Keep on trekking, ingloriously, of course. Shh. Engage. This podcast is a production of the Electric Surge Network.